Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast. Very special guest today, Nancy Wilson, one of the founding members of Heart. In addition, the guitarist, also a singer. You saw her dancing in the MTV era. Good to see you here, Nancy. <laughs> it's good to be here, Bob. I really appreciate being here with you. Okay, so you grew up in the state of Washington, right? I sure did. So what does your father do for a living? He was um, he was a retired major from the Marine Corps, and we've traveled around really a lot as kids all over the place, in Taiwan, different places in the States. Um, and so, you know, I think that's was earlier in my life I was already on on a tour per se. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Well, it's funny that so many rockers are like that. It's like, uh, you yeah. know, the uh, guys from the police, their father was in the CIA, the right. other people who traveled. So you were living in the state of Washington. Your father was still in the military. They had been stationed there at one point. They went back to retire and live there afterwards. So when you were growing up, was he still working? He was he was away a lot um, in various actions that he fought in um, Korea, you know Guam and a lot of the South Pacific stuff. So my mom was the uh, father and the mother, you know, for the three girls of us, and um, she she had a war face when she needed to. <laughs> well, that means she must have been quite a woman. So you're the youngest of three. I am the youngest of three. And so, how much older the other two? Um, Anne's the middle. She's four years older, and Lynn is eight years older. Now, we don't get much focus on Lynn. Where's Lynn today? She's still in the Seattle area um, where I used to live on, on a farm, a piece of a farm that I used to have there, and, um, you know, gardening and, and doing the uh, – actually archiving a lot of the heart stuff that was in storage there when I left – and so she's got a big job because it's archaeological layers of decades of stuff. Well, did you save stuff? I saved a lot of stuff. You know, it's very interesting because I'm a hoarder. Yeah. People always come and they say, you want to throw it? It's like, well, you know, if I ever become famous, this will be like a yeah. big thing. <laughs> oh, I've, I have – I hoard weird stuff though, like little like – Little scraps of things like little name tags, you know, from a an event like at the Elton John Oscar party or something like the name tag or, you know, um, or rose petals from a, a wedding that was meaningful or things like that, too. Well, if you're obviously a legendary star. Do you still get a thrill when you meet your heroes? I do. <laughs> so who have you met, let's say, recently where you said you can't believe it? Well... Being in the same room with Paul McCartney a few times was extremely, massively huge for me. You know, I just I just start gushing. You two, the guys in you two, they're okay. such beasts. Okay, so you're there. <laughs> Do they immediately know who you are? Uh, yeah, well, usually we're in situations where they would know anyway. Okay. You know, Because you always wonder, rock you know, shows and you stuff. have any insecurity. It's like, well, I know who they are. They may not know who I am. Tom Petty was one of those for me. Really? Yeah. So, so sad to see that. Uh, that's, I still and, can't believe he's dead. I, I mean, can't. I only saw him a couple nights before at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, so anyway, yeah. you're in Washington. Are they playing music in the home? Oh, yeah. We um, we always had music. There was always a good uh, stereo system, you know. Um, one of those big boxes that had we everything. We had the console. Oh, right. And then we had the kind of wall-mounted, and we had reel-to-reel. Really? Oh, yeah. You had we, a reel-to-reel growing up. Yeah, growing up a uh, Stereo reel-to-reel two-track. And we would make 
you know, comedy music and do like half speed and along with. Do you know what the inspiration for the purchase of that was? My parents would buy record albums, LPs, long-playing record albums at the time, and they would tape them in their entirety to uh, keep the quality, the sound quality of the records intact so that when the record got scratched, because there was dogs and kids, um, they'd still have a really fine quality system and, you know, a way to listen to their favorite albums. So you have one album on one side, which almost usually would pan out time-wise in the right amount of time. Sometimes not. It would just run off the reel. Um, And then the other side was another album. You turn the tape over. And do you remember what albums... So what were they playing? What kind of music? They had a lot of Broadway musicals. Yeah, that's, you West know. Side Story. Exactly. You know, did you have that? Absolutely. I remember one yeah. Sunday, you know, you're in Seattle, it was raining. I remember yeah. one Sunday, I made my mother play all of her Broadway records because there was a song <laughs> at my... Re- and it wasn't until the very last record that we hit the song that I wanted to hear, which was With a Little Bit of Luck. Oh, With, with a Little, little bit, bit of Luck. luck. <laughs> with a Little Bit. Yeah, I know that one, too. And there was... Um, you know, really corny ones like Oklahoma, right? And uh, really even cornier ones like uh, South Pacific. Oh, absolutely! You know, like, when I went to Tahiti, talk, I had all my iPod, and talk, I had a playlist. Talking, talking, <laughs> happy talk. Yeah, that's really funny. So they're playing those records, especially since you have older sisters. Are they buying any children's or pop records? No, but they bought Edgar Varès for say electronique. Wait, wait, what? Experimental music. Yeah, Frank Zappa was really into Edgar Varese. Oh, yes. What was the inspiration for that? They were just music students. You know, they had um, anything that Leonard Bernstein touched, they had to have. Um, We we watched the Leonard Bernstein's... uh, Music show on TV. Right. That was if so you remember br- the one with Brian Wilson, yes. played Surf's Up. It was just brilliant. Yeah. And um, they also had um, Ray Charles. They had Aretha Franklin, Peggy Lee. So they were very well-rounded musical influences on us. And we all sang. And our, we had ukuleles and my mom played piano. And so— Did you take piano lessons? Yeah, a few years of piano lessons. Right, right. Part of that Which era. was, you know, like pulling teeth. Right, right. But, Never practiced. But then you use it later, right. which is a good thing to know, you know, so just to have the kind of the theory in your head um, about intervals and harmonies and stuff. But so—and she taught us a lot of stuff on piano and— our aunts and uncles would sing and harmonize, wow. play ukuleles together. Um, we sang, you know, off-color old pub songs, old <laughs> English and Irish pub songs, like Lydia Pinkham, you know. That one I don't know. They had to pipe her to the sea and that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> And when do you start playing the guitar? When I started playing guitar was when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Right. In 63, was it? Or February 64, although four. they were on Jack Parr in 63. That's so I don't know okay. When that's on. right. Of course you know exactly. Right. Well, um, I just remember because 
my parents used to go out, yeah. you know, on Friday night and Saturday night. And my mother said, she's a real culture vulture, oh, you have to watch <laughs> Jack Parr, who would hosted The Tonight Show, had a Friday night one-hour show. Says you oh, have no. to watch this show, this new show. There's this band from England. My mother was telling me, and my mother was never a fan of. My mother loved the Four Seasons. She bought Big Girls oh, Don't yeah. Cry. We had those, but uh, she was not normally a fan. And I remember this was November of '63. They had a video shot in a theater, like from behind the bottom row of seats. There's usually like a little wall, and it was the Beatles. We didn't know because everyone was screaming. We thought the name of the song was We Love To Yeah, 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 as opposed to <laughs> She Loves You. And we laughed hysterically. Okay, and then you know, two months later, it was the biggest thing going. Wow, I know. But we also, it was the folk boom before, and we had... We had those albums too. Right. We had Peter, the, Paul, and Mary. Of course. Right. Blowing in the Wind. Blowing in the Wind. But Joan Baez. A little bit of Joan Baez, but not as much because of the uh, vibrato issue with her voice was a little... <laughs> it was like, ah, you know. We were more into um, Peter, Paul, and Mary. They were huge. They were, but we got nylon string guitar, which we started to play. But as soon as the Beatles hit... We all went electric. So you were not playing. <laughs> you were not playing guitar at all until the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. Right. I, I was playing a lot of ukulele and piano, and you know. But then we had to have the guitars. We just had to be the Beatles instead of try to marry them. We had to be them, and you consciously have a band. You and, consciously thought that instead of marrying the Beatles, you'll be a Beatle. I'll be a Beatle. Yeah. I'll I'll develop and. A fake English accent in order to feel like I'm a Beatle. Like yeah, it was we all that intense. That way. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> was this a solo thing or were your sisters in on it? No, um, she's, you know, my older sister, so we had to do it together. And we got the guitars and we learned how to play Beatle songs. And we got the Mel Bay chord book. Of course. Of course. And um, we learned all those chords and we got. So you're totally self-taught or did you take any lessons? Um, I never took guitar lessons per se. I took a couple of classical guitar lessons once, but I didn't have time because I was already touring at right. the point. At that point. So, I mean, it was 19 really when I joined Heart, basically. But let's go before that. It's 1964. You pick up the guitar. Yeah. And you start to play with your sisters. There's a whole history of singing in the house. Do you then say, we're going to form a band and we're going to mm -hmm. play? That's exactly what we, we did. It's like, we have to form a band. Um, it was kind of a folk, uh, it was a um, protest song, kind of folk-tinged folk, ed, folk protest band where we did like uh, Gates of Eden, you know, Bob Dylan stuff, right. um, you know, Blowing in the Wind. and But then we also did stuff like, you know, uh, stuff like Cherish right. that was on the radio the at the time, the right. association. And so we were kind of pop, folk, you know, rock-ish, acoustic-type, all-girl uh, foursome. Okay, who were the other two girls? They were girls we sort of enlisted out of school that didn't really know how to play or sing, but we just forced them <laughs> So, but because they were our friends. So we just wanted to have a band with friends in it, and um, we learned how to play harmony, sing harmony, play pop music off the radio, and Beatles songs. <laughs> okay, so you're obviously literally famous now, but growing up in school, you went to public school? Uh-huh. Were you one of the leaders? Were you in the background? Did you have a lot of friends prior to the music thing? 
um, always was kind of the ugly, shy, sort of fat girl. <laughs> really? With a secret sort of life, you know, at home with music. And, uh, yeah, I was never like a... I, I always kind of wished I'd been like a cheerleader or could be like those people, the popular people. Right. That was the but, big word. You wanted yeah. to be popular. You just yeah. lie in bed at night praying that you'd be popular. And hoping you could like have different body parts like the other people that you didn't have that they had, you know, just be somebody else, you know, besides so me. So now you've formed <laughs> the band. How long is it until you actually start to play outside the house? Um. <laughs> We formed it pretty quickly. We learned stuff fast. We developed a, a set, a set list, and then we got a gig um, at a like a folk festival someplace, and we actually wore granny dresses and stood on a stage. Granny dresses. Oh, but you're bringing there it was, back. There big microphones, like big microphones in front of our faces and an audience. Then we started playing wherever we could play. We played a lot of living rooms. Um, we even played at a drive-in theater one time. In between the movies? Before the movie started. And were you getting paid for these jobs? No. No. <laughs> yeah. So we were all – It was a music was a mania. That's what people talk about music today. Yeah. They have no idea what it was like. And the radio was the tribal drum. But yes. did you see this as a career or a lark? I totally thought – it was the rest of my life. Oh, really? At that yeah, young age? To do something. You can see the, the This the is my job, my vision, my quest, um, my purpose. And we just aimed ourselves like pistols at that thing. And we managed to somehow achieve it. So a lot when this all starts, <laughs> you're like in fourth, fifth grade. Yeah. Okay. So, and then your sister Anne is four years older. What plays out while you're in high school? Well, she um, she met guys with electrical guitars and amps and drums and equipment with a van. <laughs> so, right. so she was off, you know, on her own trajectory at that point. And I was still doing sort of acoustic performances on my own in little coffee shops. And when I was underage with uh, my boyfriend, <laughs> my first sort of real boyfriend, who I had a duet, acoustic duet with called Jeff and Nancy <laughs> – we were and we got a job up in um up in the mountains in a in a real redneck town up there where they used to shoot twin peaks um and we we just sang a bunch of country music for the beer swilling guys up there and um you know there we got a manager and he gave me an ovation guitar and Plugged it in, you know. So it was all. Yeah, people. All that brand was a new. big thing with a round fiberglass back, <laughs> right. et cetera, and you could plug it in. That was a huge thing in like 1968. Yeah, and you know, I was like a poster girl for Ovation there for a little while. <laughs> so you're playing with Jeff, and your sister's got her own bands doing her own thing. She was, yeah, she was kind of in a more psychedelic rock band at the time. Staying at my sister Lynn's commune a lot, rehearsing there. Wait, wait, your, wait, your sister <laughs> lived at a commune? They had a commune. <laughs> yeah, like a hippie commune. What did your parents, your father was in the military, what do you say about his daughter being in a commune? Well, they they took a bit of a dim view of the commune. <laughs> <laughs> they call themselves the Hoopers, look like a takeoff on the hippies. And there were some, definitely some mind expansion type days going on over there and we'd skip out school and we'd go play music over there and 
get we got in some trouble because Lynn's husband was a photographer, and there was some nude photography involved. <laughs> so, which was radical. So, so radical, you know. Yeah, at that point, now it's like every every newsstand cover, right? Or on the internet, it's everywhere. Yeah. So. Your sister is playing in bands but also living in Seattle. You have your duo with Jeff. Is yes. your sister having any success with her psychedelic influence bands? They were um they were playing um at some officers clubs, you know. So they were getting work. They were getting paid and uh you know, I was getting paid a little up at in uh, North Bend at the Kagan Q Tavern, but um but, uh, yeah, she was starting to make a kind of a name around town for herself because she was such a great singer, and she was just one of the singers in the band. There were guy singers in the band that would do all the rock songs, and she would just do the ballads. When she started doing Zeppelin covers, it was a whole different ball of wax, and so she started to be known as a kind of a premier local singer, and... Uh, She's got that gift. Okay. Were you both, because, you know, there's history with love mongers, et cetera, of yeah. playing Zeppelin songs. Were you that big a Zeppelin fan? We were, um, we saw Led Zeppelin play at the uh, the Green Lake Aqua Theater in Seattle opening for the Fifth Dimension one time. That's a bill. <laughs> yeah. They were just. <laughs> up, up and away. <laughs> they were, yeah, right. <laughs> they were just um, an opening act. And we were so. We were scandalized by their sexuality because we were pretty young. Right. And we just thought they were just, they were like showing their ch- bare chested and, you know, really suggestive. And, you know, Robert Plant was kind of like, looks sort of like a man, man and a woman at the same time. And it was, you know, really like, it seemed like black magic, you know, so... We we were scandalized, and then we were hooked. <laughs> and then we had to learn their songs, and we still have done a lot of their stuff. Right. Favorite Led Zeppelin song? If there's only one. Only um, one. Oh, you can maybe two. I think the Rain song. Really? Because it incorporates all of the melodic, almost classical structure, um, and the dissonance, and the power, and the delicacy that they— very well articulated. I, I <laughs> they possess all that. of those things. Right. And that one song has all of those elements. Okay. <laughs> so now you're in high school. When do you start playing with the bands with your sister? Um, I had been kind of a shadow in Anne's presence for being younger and stuff for so long in my life that I decided I would put off joining her band and go to college first. So I went to a year and a half of university in Oregon. Where? um, Portland State was the second one, and um, Pacific University was the first year. Okay. Really beautiful, old, out-in-nature kind of campuses. Nothing much to do except study. And I studied, you know, creative writing and music theory and stuff I figured I could use to bring along to the table as a musician and a writer. And it was a really good idea. And But, like, in between the school years, I'd sit in with Anne's band that was called Heart by then um, and, uh, you know, do, like, really complicated acoustic introductions to things and yes songs and 
And you learned all that stuff in college? That helped? I knew all that stuff really early on. Um, I never really studied guitar, but I I worked at it really hard. Well, that's hard stuff to play. <laughs> yeah. Well, I learned it. Like on an on an LP, you could you could switch the speed down right. to People half. Right, people don't know. Right, exactly. You you can get machines that help you do that now. Right, but you can the dual turntable had that little dial, just a dial, dial. Yeah, just a little button you could push over to the half speed, and it's the same key because it's an octave lower, and it's half as fast. And you could play everything at learning speed, but until you could do it again. So you so you're playing with Anne in between the two years of college, right? And then, how did you ultimately decide to drop out and play with her? Well, um, <laughs> well, my parents ran out of money for one thing. Oh, really? It was a Usually, of... it's the opposite. Usually, the parents are pissed that the kid drops out of college. No, I think they were pretty strapped, and um, you know, they had indulged me in the kind of the educational thing that I wanted to get a taste of, and I felt like I'd kind of gotten enough of a of a something to take along from it with me that I would just be able to you know not finish that second year and go join the army and see the world and uh, any regrets <laughs> whatsoever about dropping out of school Mm-mm. no <laughs> now we now you have two twin boys who are 18 yes are they planning to go to college they are they're um one of them's already accepted to LMU okay animation and um he's a really good animator already and the other guy uh is probably cal arts or maybe um concordia in montreal and how would you feel if they dropped out (laughs) um i would give them the same advice that my mom and dad gave me joining the band when they said you know follow your bliss do what it is you know you're going to be passionate about, and but don't change who you are. Wow. <laughs> like, if you go to Tinseltown, <laughs> stay who you are. So, of wow. course, we all went to Tinseltown, and we changed. <laughs> and then okay, so you're kind parent- of had to figure out again later who we were, you know, to start out with. Wow. It's <laughs> like a Joe Walsh song. So, yeah. uh, the, um, so you drop out. Because your parents run out of money, and you immediately join your sister's band? Uh-huh. And to what degree is that the band that ultimately makes the first record? Um, that is pretty much almost the same band, uh, minus a couple of players. Okay. We switched up a, a rhythm section, basically. Okay. And made the first album that way. Well, but before we get to the first album, you go to join your sister's band. She immediately opens. There's no issue of you joining. She wants you. No, there was a standing open invitation forever to join that band. So I knew I would join it. And we had so much comfort zone with each other as musicians and singers and players and writers already at that point that it was just a natural, you know, evolution. Okay, so when you join the band, what's the status of the band in terms of career arc? But that point they were the biggest cabaret band in Vancouver, BC. They were they were a house band at the Zodiac Room at this hotel in in town and they were touring around in Canada in in one van <laughs> in winter. <laughs> and one, you know, two-lane highways. So I joined the band at that point. 
and started playing clubs, cabarets immediately with them and, you know, learning how to play pool and, you know, how to have cocktails and stuff like that. You grew up very quickly. <laughs> I was pretty young. For Well, the drinking age was younger in Vancouver. I was 19 instead of 21. So right. I was uh, of age at that point. And the band was making enough money to support you. Well, I was living <laughs> on a on a waterbed bag without a frame in a basement on a car a very cold floor. So it was, was there a, a bag of water, water. Oh. <laughs> yeah, in a basement. So I was in the spare kind of basement room down there, freezing my ass off. But um, there was there was money enough for the the band house to buy like a. 50-pound sack of brown rice and vegetables, you know. So we all were on a really healthy diet. <laughs> right. Now, Ian was involved in a relationship with the guy who ended up being the manager of the band? Yeah, the Svengali, okay. the magic man. The magic man. And his name was? Michael Fisher. And he was the brother of the guitar player who kind of I kind of ended up with well, Roger Fisher. I was going to get get there. You went ahead when you moved to Canada. Was Michael Fisher already involved? Yes, he he was. Well, he had come down illegally across the border to visit Roger and his family, who Anne's had in her band already. So Roger was in um, Anne's band. Michael came to visit his family. He was a draft evader, so he had to come illegally across wow. the border. And she met Mike and fell in love with Mike, like hugely in love with Mike, and followed him back across the border, walking, hitchhiking with a backpack and a guitar. <laughs> and um, the rest of the band moved to Vancouver to make the band happen there so that Anne and Mike would be together. And was Mike immediately the manager? Yeah, he he had that kind of um, organized energy, and he was getting the gigs, and he was um, organizing the household and keeping the books, and you know. So how do you get involved with Roger? Um, <laughs> I kind of had to be persuaded into that situation. It was it was a it was very convenient. Because we were traveling, and I hear some an note, extra hotel room was not. I hear not some very, note of regret. <laughs> well, I didn't realize, you know, what I was doing at that age either. So it was a it was a convenient relationship to have for the purposes of um, getting the band further along, but personally, it just wasn't going to work for me. And in his case, it was the opposite. He was. He really, you know, had a thing for me, and I was just kind of going along with something just to try to get ahead. So I was, in that way, I was being like the dude in the relationship. <laughs> and how long did that go on? A couple of years. Three. Okay. So how do you end up getting the deal with Mushroom Records? Well, we were first turned down by every major label twice. And it was Mike who was pitching you. Yeah, we, we got our tapes together. We've taped live performances, reel-to-reel. And we made demos and we wrote songs and mailed them to record companies in the mail and got turned down about four times each. And then there was a local small um, record company called Mushroom Records 
uh, owned by a paint mogul guy in Vancouver who they had a little studio and they wanted to try to develop us and they got their local um, Mike Flicker, the local sort of producer guy there, and we got it together and we made the album. Okay, but you were a student of the game, and yeah. at that time, really, it was just majors. There weren't independents at that level. How did you right. feel about making a deal with Mushroom Records? It felt lucky, like somebody's going to want something from us. You know, um, it felt like it could there could be a chance, a snowball chance in hell, because it was a smaller town, a smaller group of cool, passionate people that we could put a face to instead of just a big corporate brick wall, you know. And it felt more personal, and it it was a better deal for us, even though, you know, at first they only wanted to sign Anne, only Anne. I hear you. I got it. I don't know how to quite how to respond. <laughs> yeah. I can but hear that, the disappointment in the rest of your ears. It was a little bit, yeah, that was a little hard, you know, because she, and she was cool enough to say, no, I'm, I won't do this without these key people and me being one of them and a couple of the other players. So you have to sign all of these people or I don't sign anything, which was to her credit. Absolutely. <laughs> now, <laughs> and she never regretted that, ever. But the interesting thing is Mike Flicker made that record. Yeah. That is one of the best-sounding records of all time. Yeah. People may or may not remember, God, 35 years ago, the big thing was half-speed mastered records. Yes. And there was a half-speed mastered Dreamboat Annie. You yeah. could put that on, it would just wake up the whole room. They couldn't believe the sound of the record. Cut by this nobody nowhere. <laughs> right. Well, they had one of those incredibly beautiful um, rooms that you like a Muscle Shoals kind of a room right. with that type of a board and all the tube gear and all the beautiful analog outboard gear. And um, it was just, and he just had a really good way of recording things um, up close. So you hear the wood in the guitar and you hear the wood in the room and just really had an, you know, actually Anne's making an album right now with Mike Flicker really? on her own, yeah, which is very cool. Right. So you're making that record. You're wet behind the ears. To what degree is that a, forgetting the album that resulted, to what degree was that a rewarding or frustrating experience? Because usually people always say, oh, my first record, they told me what to do. It wasn't what I wanted to do, et cetera. Yeah. Well, we were just hell-bent, you know. We were just um, dogged about what we what we were going to get out of making this record we worked really hard we were we were recording and then doing uh shows at night recording by day doing shows really? yeah we were just putting every single stitch of us into it and um and it was a big learning curve because playing in a band I had hardly played in that band for very long yet. I was a sort of more of a solo player and singer. And so getting the groove right with a band of players is a really big lesson. It's a big learning curve to not be ahead of, not pushing ahead, you know, or too lagging too far behind. And the take that has the magic in it, you know, you do full takes every time of the song all the way through time and time and time and time and time again until one of them felt like there was the magic or like the, the first half of this one and the second half of that one where they take 
the actual physical tape out. Right, right. Cut it with right. a razor blade. Right. And, you know, splice it together and then see if it worked with no safety. So it's like, whoa, those were very, you know, brave times in the recording studio. <laughs> Great times. Very, how long did it take you to make the first record? Um, we didn't have a long time to do it. I think it was maybe a couple months. So the record is now done. Are you happy with the record? Very happy with the record. Okay. Happy with the package, happy with everything. I hated the package. <laughs> the picture, you know, it was like the, one of the first times I really wore makeup and a photo shoot. And I thought it, it looked like I had dirt on my face or something. So I, <laughs> I rubbed it all off, you know, before the, the photographer came in. And I don't know. You could just see all the, the, the pimples, everything, you know, just never liked it. But everybody liked it, and it, it was controversial, the cover, because we had bare shoulders that were touching. And so— <laughs> You know, I always heard, you know, there was the classic thing, well, are they sisters, are they lovers? I never thought that! It's like it's two sisters in a band. <laughs> well, well, what was, like, was yeah, going on? What's, you know, why? Why, <laughs> exactly. why go there? Just to make it a little more scintillating or whatever. But so that's what Barracuda was about. The, the record is done. That time I was living in Utah, I was living in Mammoth. I remember hearing the songs on the radio. But right. being in the band, what was the first step in the road to success of that record? <laughs> well, in the book, it's pretty well described. The book, Kicking and Dreaming. We were still in a club phase when the album started to gain momentum. And suddenly we were playing in this really god-awful dinner club, you know, in White Rock or someplace. And we got fired for for criticizing the food at the place <laughs> on stage. And then the same night we got a call from Rod Stewart's people that said, come open for Rod Stewart in Montreal. So we got on a train, went across Canada, and opened for Rod Stewart. Okay. But a little before that, had the label gotten songs on the radio? Had you oh, heard your yeah. own song on the radio? We we got in a rent-a-car with this guy named Shelley Siegel and went to every— Shelley Siegel's no longer with us, right? No. no he's, right. He didn't last very long after that. Right. But, um, he, but he was, you know, a little wiry— rat of a, of a dude and took us to each and every radio station in America basically um and met met the DJs the programmers and said go wait in the car you know did the payola thing gave him right. whatever kind of drugs or whatever else he was doing and we were just innocent enough to not really get it you know but we broke pretty well uh region by region According to the regions, we had actually physically gone and worked station-wise. It, it seemed from the outside it was very quick. It did seem from the outside, but it was a long—it um, was a region-by-region region sort of a growth. We just kind of spread out like <laughs> like a bad growth. No, we just—we uh, kind of started—it was in the Midwest where they liked us first— and we kind of spread west after that. And finally, last but not least, the East Coast came on board. Okay. Were there any moments of doubt or once you started making the record, everything just up, up, up? It was going fast. And it was it was really exciting. And like opening for Rod Stewart at this big arena where people had heard our music and liked it already. We didn't know they'd already 
knew our music. And we started playing probably Magic Man, and they all lit their um, – then it was Bic lighters. It was before Bic lighters. Right, they lit matches. It was matches. That's really dating myself. But I don't think Bic lighters were a thing yet. They had Zippos probably, right. and it looked like a, a sea of stars. It was just like magical. It was like unforgettably amazing and cool and big and um, unfathomable. And the rock of it was like this is rock. This is what I want rock and roll to be right here, right now. A sea of stars, you know. <laughs> God, you know, it makes me tingle just hearing about it all these years later. <laughs> yeah. So then you, that's a one-off with Rod Stewart? Um, we opened for Rod um, a few shows, I believe, and then we got more offers from like ZZ Top, ZZ Top. Right. We opened for ZZ and we opened for April Wine. Big Canadian band. Big Canadian band. So we did a lot of Canadian shows in bigger places. And... Um, you know, Billy Gibbons said, hey, you're pretty good for a girl. <laughs> Hold that thought. We'll take a quick break and get right back to this conversation with Nancy Wilson of the band Heart. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see photos and videos of my guests in the TuneIn studios here in Venice, California, check out at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And now, more with Nancy Wilson. Now you're on the road. We're in the height of the Me Too movement. And you yeah. were one of the few people, <laughs> one of the few women playing music is famous. But if you start narrowing it down to being a guitarist and playing rock, there aren't that many people. Yeah, it's a small group of us. Right. Yeah. So what was it like being a woman in that world? Well, it was interesting. I'll go back to the fact that we were military brats. Um Having that dogged sort of ideology just to get it, get there and do what it is that was our bliss, to get our bliss, you know, to wrangle the bliss, our bliss to the ground. <laughs> and um, that because our mom was so strong, I guess, too, and had been the father and the mother mainly for us, that we saw the strength— and we took her strength with us, and we just didn't really take no. I mean, when somebody tried to insinuate that we were um, sister lovers, you know, that's why we wrote Barracuda. Right. Um, we just weren't going to have it that way. And we knew we were strong enough to, especially with each other there, to lean on as women. We weren't kind of singled out. You know, we had our own wagons in a circle. So... Um, and, you know, when you play guitar <laughs> and it's you can turn it up to 10 or 11. 11, right. <laughs> um, it's a lethal weapon. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a force and it's, it's a weapon, too. It's a weapon for good, which music is, you know, which is what you want to protect, is the, you know, the beautiful um, kernel of, what makes music so great and what inspires people and heals people about music. But if anybody comes up with pinwheels for eyes running at you on a rock stage, you have a weapon in your hand, <laughs> you know. I once went the first uh, Elvis Costello tour, played the whiskey, and oh, some wow. guy uh, started acting out on stage, and he literally put his Stratocaster uh, – it wasn't a Stratocaster. <laughs> it was a uh, – Telecaster? Was one, uh, no, what's the other one with only two uh, – 
um, two uh, big, broad, uh, the one that was most expensive. And it was also played by the uh, by the Beach Boys. Suddenly, I forget, but I used to know all these guitar things. It was fascinating. But he put it over his, his shoulder, and the other guys in the band broke glasses, and they were right there to fight the guy. Oh, and I remember being there, even made Time Magazine. But the perception on the outside would be that being a woman, when you weren't on stage, you had to fend off men to a certain degree. Was that true? Yes. I mean, in a band, you've got your camaraderie and your circle of dudes that you kind of travel as a pack. Right. So you you already kind of normally have that bit of a buffer zone just naturally with you. But I had a lot of run-ins with just guys that are trying to come on to me. And I developed a system, I guess, of, of just like if you're walking, you have to walk with purpose. You know, you have to um, speak with purpose. You can't be wishy-washy. You have to really know how to insinuate your power on someone else with words or with with even just body language. So it's funny you mention that because I was married to someone who didn't understand all that oh. and would end up in bad situations. Oh wow. You have to send a signal. Right, it's it can be very um invisible, you know, to the uh, but you're sending signals, you know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's like when you're walking down a hall and you're going to go this way and somebody else is going to go that way. The body language is what you read off the other person. Now, just, you know, this is all this is dangerous territory. But if you talk to male musicians, to a great degree, they all say, <laughs> I really couldn't talk anybody. I spoke through my music and I wanted to be famous for the sexual opportunities. <laughs> okay. For the guy, for, for the, the girl. Is that ever the crossed the mind of a woman? I'm on the road. There are all these men um, who are fixated on me. I think, yeah, I think a lot of women have have wanted to use men the way they've probably felt used by men. Right. With that kind of power that rock a rock stage gives you or mus- music will give you. Um, performance can give you that. Um, but I guess <laughs> I never felt that way. I never felt like objectifying men as sexualizing men from that standpoint. I was always really sexual person and very interested in the sexuality of the music, what the music brings across, and how romantic it can also be, which is more sexy to me than just sexy. Just staying there, the way you describe that, you know, what people, people at this era where stardom is so anointed and prevalent, people forget that underneath it, people are actually musicians. Yeah. So I have to True. ask you, since you've met, you've used a lot of terms and a lot of insight as being a musician, do you find that you like that cocoon and it is somewhat difficult interacting with non-musician people? Or <laughs> That's is a it- really, really <laughs> interesting question. Um, there is a total language with musicians. If you're in different recording studios for different purposes and different projects with almost any other re- musicians you already have the language everyone's has the same jokes the same there's just a total musician style um a lifestyle and a lot of it comes from all the hours of le- trying and failing and trying and failing and learning your craft and being getting good at it and knowing when to shut up and when to give you know 
over to not to cover up too much space, but when to when to shine, you know. All those various lessons that musicians have take with them, and that makes a personality type. Um, so I've never felt as at home with a lot of regular folks in life, you know. Like, I mean, I like people, and I, I'm good with people, and I believe people are good, you know, despite a lot of the evidence. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I'm just kind of a, I'm kind of clumsy in social settings where it's like, what, what do I say now? You know, what, how am I supposed to act? Right. Yeah. I certainly understand that. But let's go back to the band. So the Dreamboat Annie blows up. Yeah. Okay. And then the whole thing blows up. Yeah. So you ultimately get in a war with a label. You switch to Epic. What's going on at that time? There was trouble with the second album that's really kind of boring. It, you know, it's not interesting at all. But, but you it was, in, you, you we could have technically have been stopped from making it, the rest of the album, recording the album. Okay, but just so I know, because, you know, there's been a lot of stories, whatever. The second album you intended to make for Mushroom? Yeah. And then they found out you were negotiating with Epic. How did that ultimately Yeah, something come? in there got real fishy with between Mushroom and Epic, and we needed to, we had a key man clause to get us out of being forced to uh, release a mush, another Mushroom or Epic um, release that they wanted to finish without our actual, right. without our actual input. So there was, it was a, <laughs> it was a litigious time, Bob. Well, you know, all I know is you know, there, are many, <laughs> there are a number of bands been through this. And uh, it almost, you know, destroyed the band. Springsteen. Yeah, Springsteen and Petty, Petty, et cetera, et cetera. So being in the middle of that maelstrom, what was your perspective? Um, We were just really PO'd. We were pissed and we were on, you know, on a a tirade to get the album finished um, in in a 10-day period so that we'd have our own input on the album. And... The other one was released anyway that didn't have our approval and was taken and then was taken off the shelves after that. So it's a rarity. But, you know, it was just all this stuff. We were sleeping under the console and taking turns finishing overdubs and before the deadline, you know, to try to get our own artistic content on this album. So then you switch to Epic, though. Legal wars are behind you, and you continue to have success. Yes. <laughs> what was that like to be – you had one success after another. Well, it was, it, was, um, it was fraught with, you know, the things that naturally come after you've started and then you're trying to sustain your a career with – something that's meaningfully creative in your life. And so we were touring more. I mean, this is the age-old story, you know. So all the story in the world, you, you have your lifetime to make your first album, and then, right. you know, everyone says it, but it's true. And then you're kind of forced to hurry up and create, and you have X amount of time. The rest of it, you're making money on the road, and then that's a big that's a siren song in itself because you're now you're big and popular and you're on the road and there's all this other world of of distractions and potential uh you know um accidents 
that you're going to well, make. Just a little deeper. The distractions yeah. and the potential accidents are what? Well, there's there's like the world becomes your oyster and there's there's lavish restaurants and there's lavish wines and everyone is stroking your ego and all those typical things that my mom and dad warned us about. The tinsel town of it all, you know, we're just like, oh, I think I'll buy a farm on, you know, the Oregon coast, a 160-acre farm and, you know, get dune buggies and have horses and I think I'm, like, going to be like Neil Young and, you know, and go there and ride. It's like only trouble is it's 14 hours to get there, you know. So you never get there and then you have to sell the farm and you buy another house and you can't afford both of them, and it won't sell, and just all of the financial hoi folloi and hoo-ha that you have to learn the hard way to get through. Okay, <laughs> so rock and roll's rife with stories of people who earn money that didn't get to them. Yeah. You're working hard. You feel successful. Was money trickling down into your account? Well, I was spending it pretty fast. <laughs> but no, I was, just to be honest, I was um, like... More than a millionaire by 21, and then really broke by 35, and then a millionaire again in the 80s, you know, double millionaire over here, and then really hard luck over there. It's, it was just a real estate disorder, I think. <laughs> so at this point in time, with all these ups and downs, do you think you're really good with money now, or you're still bad? I don't know one thing about money any, ever. I never have. Um it's been, you know, my Achilles heel. Um, but I'm married to somebody that does, so I'm well, really, good. Got, really good glad about that. Yep, yeah, so he's a good yeah. <laughs> oh, watchdog. <laughs> so, okay, you're making these records for Epic. Are you happy with those records? They were, they were less and less, for me, less and less um, solid. Artistically, they, we got a little more big for our britches, and hubris kind of kicked in. And we were going to be the, we're going to fire some guys in the band, and then we're going to record it the way we want to record it. We're going to, you know, be the producers and play more of the parts ourselves. And um, it, it got uneven. Those albums got pretty uneven. They were, they all had really nice, I think, gems in there, but. As a piece, as a whole, those albums were kind of, you know, sc scattered. And how does it end with Epic and you end up in Capitol? We'd sort of had a, a downturn for a while there for all the obvious reasons. And um, when we decided we wanted to try to give it one more college try, right. we hired a manager. We hired – we wanted to get a new record company and management and wanted to retool our entire image. And so we – we got out the glam and, you know, got the big hair and <laughs> the fashionistas of rock, you know. And we we went very um, Prince in the Revolution with it. And MTV started to happen. So then it was all about visuals. And so, you know, we had some of that to give over. Um, that became obnoxious after a while, though, too, because it became overblown and bombastic as you well remember by the end of the 80s the bombast had grown to such an extent that when the Seattle explosion came along 
it was just like what the doctor ordered after <laughs> MTV, you know. Let's go back to where we were. You're talking about the money. If you never played another note on stage, do you have enough money to get to the end? I have some savings now. That's what I mean. I mean, do you have enough saved and is there enough income from maybe songs or whatever such that if you stop playing today, you could retire on that money? No, I don't think so. Okay. Honestly, um, the touring life is was the actual real money. Right. And not so much the songwriting anymore or the licensing. That's really, really dwindled to next to nothing. So it used to be way different, you know. Songwriting used to be really lucrative. And it, I'm sure it is for a lot of these guys now. But um, you have to have big, big hits. Right. You know, too. And... And now it's like teams of produ- production and writer teams, and it's art by committee, you know. But but I used to make really good money at, at songwriting and touring. Um, you used to loan your songs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so let's go back. You go to the Capitol era. Is it your decision to glam it up, or is it their decision to glam it up, the label? It was sort of a, a mutually agreed-upon thrust, you know, like, okay, we're going to do it this way. We're going to go in. We're going to get big makeup, big hair, design, you know, wardrobe and makeup and hair and, um, you know, camera, lights, action, and, you know, okay, now simper and pout. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we would just naturally do on a rock stage. But when there's cameras now, there's, there's, you know, lots of teams of Ben you know, cast of Ben-Hur extras going on, you know, doing their, I mean, some of those video sets were just out, outlandishly ridiculous. I mean, just ridiculous. And you see that stuff now, and it's very entertaining because it was so, but it's so dated, you know, it's so of its time. What do your kids say about those videos? They they get a really good laugh out, belly laugh when they see that stuff. And so do I. <laughs> okay, but now we all remember the power of MTV. As big as you were, yeah. and you've been around for years at that point, once you're on MTV, everybody knows who you are. So what <laughs> the was American like? Living Room says hello. Right, yeah. right. It was weird because it was such a new feature in our story uh, as musicians. And at one point somebody said, um, wow, you must have had your boobs done. And I was like, what? You know, just because it was accented. Right. And um, and do you really play the guitar? And I was like, <laughs> yes, it's not a prop, you know. <laughs> and it was just kind of like that's where it sort of went over the line in a way for the just being having being taken seriously as a musician. Right. When it's more like you're now you're a sex kitten and what about the musician part, you know? And then in the height of MTV, can you go to the grocery store? Um, not as much, no. I mean, especially if Ann and I were together going anywhere because it's like the two of them right. together is the aspect of them together. Um, I could get away with more, you know, anonymity on my own. And I I always like to try to go to the store, you know. Um, try to live a normal life, but whether yeah. the audience lets you is another something. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, I go to the store a lot now, and it's great. I like being normal. I like having a kitchen and a, you know, <laughs> washer and dryer, for Christ's sake. 
But okay, going back to the MTV era, all of a sudden from the outside, it looks like the focus changes from your sister to you. Well, there was that too. That was going on with her weight at the time was um, less than what was supposedly acceptable. So she wasn't, you know, they they there were some mean spirited things going on in the press about it. When we were playing shows, they would comment more about that than the show, about her, you know, her her weight. And that then they would contrast me to her and say, you know, the the demure, um, you know, the the blonde, sexy, demure sister, and then the the sort of overweight, caterwauling sister. It was just really mean. A lot of that stuff was really mean. So we started to say, don't show us any sh- reviews unless they're good. <laughs> and then we didn't really see any reviews yeah, after right. that. So. <laughs> but it was just a weird time um, that was so focused on image and less on music that it. I think that was part of Anne's issue. It's like she felt so much pressure. And how did the two of you get along during that era? We had a harder time just as people getting through that era because of the pressure on me to be in front and when she had started the band, you know. And and she was going through her own sort of personal stuff, issues, and um, fighting with her own demons. And so it was rough. I mean, we had the most money and— but the least the, the the least amount of joy from the, that whole era, and you know there was just one day where they offered us like one million dollars to play a show at a festival somewhere, but it just happened to be the day that I'd planned on getting married, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I said no. I mean, not one million dollars is going to change my mind. So, you know, there's there's always ethical issues going on in, in, the, in that era, and a lot of it was um, artistically ethical issues. Okay, but at that point, once you're at Capitol, you're now using co-writers, other people involved. What we was were, that like? We were, um, we were sort of encouraged by way of um, sort of, how do you say, we won't back you. We won't back your album. We kind of threatened. Threatened, that's the word. Um, If we didn't use outside writers, the stable of L.A. hitmakers type writers, we could have a few of our own songs on the albums too if we went with the hits that they chose from other writers that had written, other writers had written. So, you know, that was happening everywhere. It was Aerosmith. It was all the rock bands were doing it. All the big power ballads, you know. Cheap Trick even did it too. Even Cheap Trick. Had the flame. But what was it like? Because you have bona fides as a musician. So what was it like being thrust in that situation? It was was weird. I mean, we'd always prided ourselves on being originally active, you know, writers. And um, even though we'd sort of lost some of our thread, you know, as talented hit songwriters, um, being kind of forced— Having these other writers forced down our throats in a way was really upsetting and kind of um, – it was 
you know, it was it was upsetting. And a lot of the songs we would audition song after song after song after song with the then producer, just cassette tape, cassette tape, cassette tape, song after song after song. And there were so many that were so formulaic and so much the same, and so many that were demo singers um, singing about some guy broke my heart and just like the victim of it, the victim and the victim and more victims and um, or like the sexy chick songs. And it was just like really disappointing. And it was it was very narrow. It was a very narrow um, line to walk. So we did find beautiful songs. We found these dreams. Right. Which um, they didn't even want us to actually do. <laughs> but I said, I have to do this song. This one's for me. And um, and Bernie Taupin's lyrics are always amazing. Um, and Alone, it's a great song. And a few others. But um, it was just really strange. Put your feet to the fire. And, you know, in order to save a couple of your own originals, you have to do these other big bombastic ones. And so what was it like? Was it as satisfying having hits with somebody else's songs as it was having hits with your own? Um, no, actually. It was just a pride issue, like artistic, you know, control. I mean, I loved, I've grown to love songs like Alone and songs like These Dreams a lot because I think they, they hold integrity and they're kind of timeless. And... And they're, 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 it's about more than just <laughs> wimpy girls, you know, acting wimpy, um, whining, <laughs> whining wimpy girls. But, um, but yeah, I think it was a, it's, it's a hollow victory when you have huger success with less of your own footprint to, you know, to show for it. And so, how does it end in the capital years? Is it, you know, all of a sudden the records aren't successful or what happens? Um, I think we had the deal that was for a couple albums, I think, and we fulfilled our agreement and we've done our deed and we'd um, sort of reached a <laughs> – we'd kind of reached our um, critical mass as a band with – the issues with Anne's weight and the imaging and the end of the 80s and how music was about to explode into something completely different. So we kind of decided to let it lay at that, let it, just let it sit and take a sabbatical <laughs> and go home and, you know, get some time at home and see our family and do some laundry, <laughs> have a kitchen and a washer and dryer, and um, drive a car. Oh, my God. And uh, so we we kind of made the love mongers then. Right. So what was the thinking there? Well, we'd sort of had it with the big sporting event type, you know, rock shows where it was it was just too big, too much, and the pressure was to, to be like a— like an MTV video all the time. So we decided we'd put on our combat boots and go to Seattle and kick around in some some clubs again and where you could just see the whites of their eyes and connect and just do whatever the heck we wanted to do song-wise. Like we covered Moody Blues and we covered Stones and we 
did our own stuff too and some new stuff and we made a couple albums. We made a good uh, Christmas album and we made an album called Whirly Gig. We just had a blast. It was just, it was like everything was lifted off of us and it was back to, you know, making no money, <laughs> actually paying to play basically, but it was really fulfilling. So ultimately a good experience. Very good experience. And that brings us, what, like 1995, 96? Yeah, I guess so. And then what was the thinking then? Well, I was um, decided to start a family. And so I couldn't be kind of on tour with Hart. You know, we kind of had put it on hold. And then um, instead of going back out with Hart, um, I I stayed home for a few years just trying to, to – uh, you know, do fertility stuff and start my family, which took longer than I ever expected it would take, starting at an older age at that time. And then, um, so Anne went out on her own and did like a bunch of like Marine Corps bases. And I guess there was like a Marlboro sponsorship or something like that. And she, you know, she kept on going. And I, you know, I, it took me quite a while to get back to doing heart after I had my kids and they were two years old. And we went back out in 02 with the Summer of Love tour. So now that you have kids and you've done everything, yeah. a, is it possible to do everything? Is it possible to be a world-famous rock star and have a family? Or <laughs> Well, I think it's next to impossible. Uh, I'm not sure – how I've managed to do it. I mean, it's the biggest um, stress that I've ever felt was to try to balance how much to tour and how much to be home and in order to get enough to survive and afford everything at the same time. So it's something that I think a lot of career women, not just in music, but a lot of women have to deal with. And if if they're highly paid career women, then you've got you've got a team of experts to help with your kids. But a lot of people don't. So, you know, and I wanted to be on the ground. I wanted to be I didn't want to miss it either. So we were doing a lot of tours where you know, they would come out we'd have the diaper pail on the tour bus and we'd, you know, have the babies, the football sized kids out with us and then We'd have, uh, when they got bigger and they had to start school, then we'd have them come out for breaks and um, have a nanny come with them and somebody to watch them when we were on the stage, feed them, get them to bed when we were, before the show was over. So we worked on it from every angle as much as we could work on it that way and being able to see your kids and have your job at the same time. But it's hard when your job is traveling. You know, your kids are not, you know, they're not vagabond, born vagabonds like like me. <laughs> you know, the military tour life, that's how I started. So it's interesting. So do you have any regrets that you didn't spend enough time with your kids or you didn't give them enough? I, I, I've, pulled, I've been pulled apart a lot about it, um, feeling like I was going to miss— a lot, and I missed some of it, 
And, uh, but, you know, I do music, so that's my job. <laughs> so that's, I think that's the, that's the sacrifice. Um, the, the most important part of the time together, though, is the quality of the time together. Sounds very, you know, died in the wool, tried and true, but it is true that if you're present and you're really there, you're not just, oh, I've just got to, you know, sort of be the the token parent in the house. You know, it's like, no, you're going to get, you're going to climb into the cardboard box with them and you're going to show them how to cook and you're going to watch the movies and read the books out loud at night, help them fall asleep and all of it. And at this point in time, that's kind of a difficult question in terms of to put yourself in these shoes. Do you feel that... If you hadn't had children, you would be as fulfilled? I always really wanted to have children. <laughs> um, and I'm a natural nurturing type person. So, you know, I've always had dogs and I've just always been that person. Our mom was like that. Our Anne's much more like our dad, you know, so she's more kind of the aloof one. I'm more the hands-on mommy type person. Okay, but you didn't have your kids till relatively late. So it was in the back of your mind all these years on the road, wow, wow, my kids, am I going to have them, not have them? Yeah, I always planned on having them. And I figured, you know, well, when the time is right, and then the next big wave would happen, you know, like you'd fight for the wave to happen, and then the wave comes. And then you have to, you know, work for the wave. And the wave carries you. So... Um, the timing was difficult, and I never felt that it would ever be if I don't make it happen and stop myself from continuing on the never-ending cycle that it would ever happen. So I stopped on purpose and just for that thing. And so, but people, I don't have children, but people say, you know, once the kids are born, you know, it changes your life and it's the most important thing. Most people don't have the level of success in their career as you've had. Now, I don't want to do a direct comparison between career success and children, but what's it like from your perspective? Well, I think career success, we've lived our lifetime at least three or four times as a, as careerists, you know, um, we're lucky if we... We can still get arrested, I'm sure, if heart goes out again, um, which remains to be seen. But uh, I think having the kids, the fulfillment of being a parent and just the raw um, and insane pain of being a parent and the responsibility and fear of being a parent and fearing for the life of your child and the safety and all of the you know, all of the exasperating elements of parenting, it it also injects you with a uh, a deeper sense of humanity, which then translates into the work. So I feel like the songs I've been writing now are way more kind of generated from a deeper place, not just a place of, I'm going to get some dudes, you know, <laughs> or, you know, but, right. or just be, you know, on a rock stage where people dig me, but it's a human thing. This is Bob Lefsetz, and I'm a writer, and you can read my stuff at lefsetz.com. I'd like to invite you to attend my Music Media Summit in Santa Barbara the last weekend in April. I'd love for you to come and learn from the best in the business, like Troy Carter of Spotify, 
If you're interested, go to musicmediasummit.com to sign up. And now, let's dive right back in with my guest, Nancy Wilson. You reformed the band in 2002. You go on the Summer of Love tour. Is there any idea of where you are in the marketplace? Do you think you can have hits again? Do you don't think you can have hits again? What's the mind thought through there? Well, um, we were out working the – we were just ready to get out and work the real estate again and sell tickets, play heart songs that people know. Um, you know, we weren't really trying to write new stuff. We were just trying to get back on on, on some kind of a track right. with me back in the band. And um, we played every single place with electricity. You know, we went <laughs> – for the next like however many years till the last couple of years ago, we've been out playing every place with electricity. You play essentially every summer. Every summer mainly. And you play the sheds. And sometimes in the in the falls and the, sometimes in the winter. How many gigs a year? A couple hundred. That's a at, lot at of times. work. That's a lot of work. It there's no there's nary a comfort zone to be had. Like eighty to a hundred, sometimes two hundred. Okay. Who's the manager now? Um, right now we're between. Okay, who was the manager before? Carol Peters. Okay, yeah. so you're out. How do you feel playing the same? Now, I'm a writer. One of the bad things I have is I'll write something great. So that's it. I can't write it again. You know, <laughs> whatever. Whereas a musician can play the same song till eternity. But what's it like being on stage playing crazy on you? You know, forty years later. Well, it's a it's really a testament to songs like Crazy on You and Barracuda, that they're still fun to play. They, um, and you see people react to it. Um, you know, I, I don't think Anne feels the same way. But what, how do you think she feels? I think she feels more like, um, you know, I've done this enough. Right. And I want to do something really different and fun and for herself. But I still get a big thrill out of, like, doing the kick when Crazy on You starts. Right. And seeing people go nuts, and it's just like a, it's a high. And songs like Barracuda, and I have a new band now too, a new band. Right. Um, We're going to get to that, but mm-hmm. let, let's say okay. So you do this, you go out every summer. Let's say you play and you're off stage at eleven p.m. Uh-huh. Okay, when do you fall asleep? About two, probably around two. And this is in a bus usually. In a bus, yeah. Okay, but it takes that long to wind down. It takes a while to wind down. And normally you want to have like something to eat, you know, because you couldn't eat before the show because you were nervous. So you have to have something sensible to eat that's not pizza. So you have to try to make something on the bus before the bus pulls away so you're not jostling around trying to cook anything. So I got pretty good at cooking in the kitchenette on the bus, (laughs) the galley. Um, and then you kind of want to recap the night with the band members, um, or, or try to watch a movie and just kind of, you know, unspool the energy. And, um, cause you know, once you go back into your bunk, it's just like you're in a little, you're, you're kind of stuck by yourself. Right in a coffin. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, some, you can watch stuff in there too on your on your laptop, but it's jostling around and you can't really sleep very well anyway. So, you know, and then you, if, if you're lucky, you can sleep, you can wake up at the gig, the next gig. Right. And sleep in 
until sound check starts. <laughs> and then you get up and do your sound check and do your hair and your makeup and go play. But it's, um, it's you know, and the the hotels are not so much to brag about usually because you're trying to save money. And so it's it's really kind of a... The the best part of any rock and roll tour day is the two hours on stage. Right. It's just that, you know, transcendent thing and it's the, the thrill of people coming and, sh- and sharing with you, you know. And the songs themselves are the the honey <laughs> that draws the that draws the bee. And so let's assume you went on the road for three months and you come home. How long does it take to recover from that? Um, well, it takes about a, a, takes about three or four days or a week um, to kind of the momentum that you're so used to the momentum of always going and going and going and getting there, doing that and going some more and never really stopping. Um, you're kind of like, wait a minute. I'm sitting here, you know, I'm looking at a piece of dust in the in the air, you know. It's sort of like that moment where you're like, wow, should I meditate or something? You know, it's it's a real, it's a, it's really jar, jarring when you stop, yeah. So, I mean, this is public information, but on the last heart tour, uh, the public story was there was an altercation between yeah. Anne's husband and your children. Mm-hmm. Where does that leave the relationships now? Well, you know, right now, sadly, it's hasn't left it in a good place at all. Um, uh, you know, I know Anne and I will always adore each other and um, want to, you know, always attest to loving each other. But that was just kind of a a weird. Um, I think it was kind of a power move. Um, and a control thing. In addition to the raw be bad behavior, mm-hmm. there was that subtext. Yeah, that's what I believe. And um, and it's been sort of that way ever since. And I understand her desire to get out there and not do the same thing, you know, and not be holding to the, the heart machine, you know. Um, but I think the sad part... I mean, I I respect her wishes to go out and try new stuff, which I think is great for her and healthy for her. Um, But for me, for the fans, I think it's a sad thing because we still have it in us to to take it around, you know. So are you again in communication with Anne? Not really. Okay, I've kind of put it out there a few times, and it's just not coming back. You know, from an outside observer, it would seem that it was her husband who was accused of bad behavior. So you right. would think that she would be the one who wanted to be apologetic. Well, I think she's um, – she wants to apologize for him, right, and protect him. It's, and it's, it's her first real relationship since the very beginning. So, you know, she's – I think she's protecting her newfound – relationship and that's more important to her right now than pretty so much in any anything event, else. So in any event, you're amenable 
to getting the sinews, you know, building again. Yes. And it, you know, yes. first on a personal level. So it's more on her end that she's uh, reluctant. Yeah, I think she's reluctant and she's going to have to figure it out for a while and maybe be ready, maybe not. Well, eventually, you know, I hate to be so, you know, bottom line about this. Eventually, yeah. the money makes everybody ready. Even the <laughs> Eagles, you know, the Eagles said right. they weren't going to reform. Right. Glenn Fry died and they're out on the road right now. And that was even after the hell froze over one. Exactly, that, right? exactly. Well, the irony is, is they're better than ever. You would like to tell you it's nostalgia. Everybody's like, skill, everybody's something. farewell thing now is fun. It's so great. Like Elton John's uh, farewell Yellow Brick Road tour. It's like 300 shows long. <laughs> it's three years or well, something. It's like, you know, uh, George Strait retired from touring. Well, I retired from touring, not live performances. Yes. So I'll play in touring. Vegas. Yeah, so I'll, right. I'll set up a, yeah, a Vegas residency or something. My favorite, I'm talking a little out of school, is a friend of mine's the agent for the Scorpions. Mm. He says, hey, you want to go to the forum tonight? Great I know guys. The, I know those guys a little bit, whatever, anyway. And... He says, you know, it's a farewell. He says, yeah, the new album's coming in October. Oh. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I thought it was a farewell the tour. The farewell tour right. until the new album comes out. So, but in any event. How many times did the Stones do that? Right. Although at this point in time, I think people are literally going to the Stones because they think it may be the last time. Yeah, yeah. The irony being I've seen the Stones a zillion times and they were kind of like the Grateful Dead. They'd play for an hour and a half. Half hour would be terrible, half hour would be mediocre, and then half hour would be <laughs> locked right on. Wow. But I saw hmm. them, uh, you know, a year or two what ago. A band. Mick was – the only weak link was Keith, ironically, who occasionally hit a bad note. Hmm. Mick was as good as ever. It was kind of astounding. Wow. He's yeah. He's in. He's the Energizer Bunny. He's, right. <laughs> yeah. Father was a gym teacher. He's taking off on that. So in oh, any well. event, hmm. you have a new band. Was that something you always wanted to do, or is that as a result of the Discord in the Heart Camp? Well, it was um, something that that sort of fell together for both of those things, f- for the reason of the Discord in the camp, but also for the reason of having run into and um, met up with Liz. Liv Warfield, who from Prince's New Power Generation, who opened for us at the Hollywood Bowl a couple nights. And um, you maintained a relationship with her? Yeah. We we hit it off. Her guitar player, uh, Ryan Waters, um, was with her, and we all just started talking about, we should just do something. She goes, I want to ride, I want to be relegated in this, the soul categories quite as much, and, you know, the funk soul thing. I want to rock. You guys rock. Like, we sh- I should send you some of my ideas. And it's like, send them. Let's do it. Let's be people that that actually do it, not just talk about doing it. And we started doing it. And um, then after the, the heart thing kind of went went sideways. Um, Jeff, so this started before the heart thing went sideways. Yeah, we started talking about right. just something fun to do. Right. Um, and, you know, my husband Jeff um, said – after the heart thing kind of went sideways, he said, we should do this now, right away. Let's get a rehearsal place. Let's bring those guys in, fly them in from Seattle and, and Chicago and have a band meeting and figure out what we're doing and do it, record it. And we did, and we made an album, and it's, it's a really good one. <laughs> now, you're going out on tour opening for Seeger? Yeah, we started the tour with opening for Seeger, well, a few months ago, and we uh, get we had gig? to postpone it. Well, it was offered to Hart, incidentally, uh-huh. and um, Anne just said, no, I don't want to do the same old thing anymore. Okay. And 
I said, well, so I talked to Bob Seeger's people and said, what about my new band, Roadcase Royale? And uh, it's actually called Nancy Wilson of Heart with Roadcase Royale. Yeah, it always comes down but, to you know, the money. It has to be, yeah. But um, that's cool, though. And they said, no, we just really need to sell tickets. But send us your stuff anyway. And they, when they checked out our, our album and our videos, they said, wait a sec. We, wanted, we want you to come and do this, you know, for next to nothing, which Hart was going to get a lot to do. Right. But, but for next to nothing, it was our, our chance to get big exposure and start with that. So we did about seven shows with Seeger. But then he got his injury into one of his neck vertebrae and had to postpone everything. So it's not canceled. We're going back out like in the fall after Labor Day or how many, summer. How, how many dates do you know? Probably at least 80. That's a, okay, that's a lot really of a tour. And it's all like the tour before was going to be 60. Um, and you're booked for all 80 shows. All of those. Well, we don't have the dates yet. But I mean, but you, you, the commitment we, is. The commitment is for everything that right. they, they can get us. Right. And it's all arenas. The last leg we, we were going to do was completely sold out arenas. Everywhere. I'm sure it's secret will sell out arenas anyway. He's, he's so good. Right. So when you go out with your new band, to what degree do you play heart songs? We play um, like uh, we play Crazy on You to finish up the set. And I sing Even It Up to start the set. Right. And then we do These Dreams, a new version of These Dreams. Right. Um, and Straight On. That's a different that's, way of Other on. than Crazy and <laughs> You Magic Man Straight On is my favorite heart That's song. a good one. And we do a cool version. It's just a little bit, you know, we switched it up. But yeah. And, and we, so what's the reception like? It's been amazing. I think because of the uh, stricter security rules nowadays for, for um, you know, people coming into the shows, they open the doors earlier. And so by the time we started the show— our 45-minute set, everybody was mostly in the building. They were getting their beers and their shirts or whatever, and they started hearing a heart song, and they all came down. So by the end of our 45-minute set, the whole place was full, and they were standing up for Crazy on You. So it was like, wow, that was good. Right, right. I can't wait to get back out there. Okay, so (laughs) you live in a world where all the money is on the road, and it's a road-driven business, but with your new act— are you doing any of the traditional things, i.e. radio, et cetera? Yeah. We went to a record store and we played an acoustic set and went to some radio stations and uh, interviewed and did some acoustic stuff. And, you know, we just – we try to um, – you know, plant the seeds wherever we are in the towns just to get our word out there. It's just like starting over. And is that depressing <laughs> or exciting? It's very exciting. Um, these these people in my band are just, I love them. And we have a thing that's just so tight. And everybody's experienced, everybody knows, like I said earlier about the, mu- the language of musicians, you know. Every, we all have the same... Not only the language, but the dialect and the accent, everything. And we we are already, you know, each other's besties. And it's so fun to play with those guys. Talking about new music, I mean, just about music in general, not your new music. I'll leave this person. I'm a very famous guitarist. I was talking to him, legendary person. And I asked him about new music. And he said, how would I know? I'm 62. 
<laughs> so the question, although you have relatively young children, do you keep up with new music? Yeah. Um, I like to listen to St. Vincent and kind of college station stuff. You know, the good songwriters that are coming out now. But you have younger children. Mm-hmm. What are they listening to? They're listening to classic rock. Really? Interestingly. No hip-hop. No, they don't They don't go for that. Um, they're 18, two twin boys, and one of them just took up on his own without my prompting him, took up guitar recently, and he's getting good. He's taking some lessons. He's listening to Credence. He's listening to, uh, you know, Zeppelin. Um, oh, it's the band that sounds like Zeppelin now. Greta Van Fleet. Greta Van Fleet. Right. Great band. Right, absolutely. And, um, you know, just... All that stuff. I mean, uh, ZZ Top and Pink Floyd and um, uh, just, you know, everything that we would find right. uh, yummy. And if we're in your house, <laughs> is there music playing in your house? Yeah. I usually have a, like a Pandora thing going on. Um, I try to, you know, mix it up, but I do um, like the Jim James kind of station and, you know. My morning jackets type station, and then I do an, actually a classical station for Sunday afternoons, okay. Sunday brunch. And, I mean, our family, we used to listen to opera on Sundays with pancakes and bacon and all that stuff. Really? Could opera. you talk or did you have to listen? No, we, we talked and we sang along. We learned a bunch of— Really? You knew all the opera? We knew some of it, yeah. A lot. We used to listen to the Mikado— and some of the same ones, you know. That's a big thing for my mother because, you know, they broadcast the Metropolitan Opera in the theaters. Yeah. And then she'll go, you know, on Saturdays. But growing up close to New York, I mean, in school, we would go to the opera, which was always, yeah. you know, a cool experience. It was cool, even if even if it was really boring. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well we put. Same it thing. was really boring. It was cool. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it was still cool. Well, well said. Having been a woman who's been very successful in the music business, what advice would you give to women starting out today? Well, here's my stock answer. I'd turn back if I were you. That's what, <laughs> Don't I, told, go in there. That's what I tell everybody. <laughs> you want to be the music that makes the business. First thing, get out. Get out of there quick. Right. Run like hell. Right. In the opposite direction. No, I'd say um, <laughs> get proficient. Be good at what you want. If you really want to do it, be ready to suffer for it. You know, fail. <laughs> Be ready, be ready but it doesn't sound like you had a lot of failure. Well, there's been a lot of hits and misses. But when you think of the arc of the entire career, since 76, basically, you know, that's a long career. But your first album was very successful. And in addition, yeah. something you could be proud of. Yeah. So like you put it out and you go, oh, man, yeah, it was a hit, but I didn't really yeah. like it. Still proud of that one. Yeah. I mean, but the fact it was hit almost immediately yeah. came out of nowhere. I know. It was really like... Uh, a fluke in a certain way because it was like an indie thing. Exactly. Before that was indie things people, don't know, people are too young now. They don't understand an indie record in the 70s just didn't happen. No. And every major was like just a big no way, no way, Jose. Well, Go. they don't really know. I mean, John Cougar Mellencamp or whatever he's calling himself this week, <laughs> you know, he had with his breakthrough album they didn't want to put out. Which was American Fool. Oh, right, right, right. And he said, no, you got to put it out. I don't care. The label really doesn't know. Having said that, I've dealt with a lot of musicians who don't yeah. know what a hit single is either. But Right, right. But the one— Well, the men in suits, you know, the, the joke was always they've, they've just got their ears painted on. You know, the men in the suits in those office buildings. I never buildings. heard that expression. I guess well, I'm not a musician. you know it. Yes. They just have their yes. ears painted on. They, had their ears, they just have their ears painted on. They don't have ears. Right. 
That's you know, it's always funny to learn something. Listen, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for coming, giving us so your insight glad. from your perspective. So glad you had me here. Thank you. It was great. That's Nancy Wilson of Heart and her new band, Build With Her Name, and also with The Road Case. And that's all available on Spotify now, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yep. It sure is. Road Case Royale. Till next time. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. I know there are a ton of podcasts out there, so thank you so much for joining me for this conversation with the great Nancy Wilson. Until next time, it's Bob Left Sets. <laughs> <laughs>